I didn't know we were going to be singing The Lion and the Lamb when I picked that video. <laughs> and truth be told, it wasn't my idea. And if you ever wonder why we include the next generation from sixth grade up through senior high in our services rather than having a special Sunday school for experience for them, this is why. We were watching that movie as a family this past week, and Keaton looks at me after that scene. He says, Dad, that's perfect for your sermon series. You need to show that video and, and help people see, you know, getting past your past is you can either learn from it or you can, you know, uh, just repeat it over and over. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this sermon series. So that was a great fit and uh, really appreciate that. And, and they're, they're listening. They're watching. They're, they're paying attention. So if you have young people in your home, uh, talk to them. Incorporate that into your, into your rhythms of life and, uh, and, and do that. Lean into that because um, that was a real treat uh, for me. And before I dive into the message today, I just want to give you guys a little bit of an update. Um, I won't do this very often, but wanted to let you know that the Sunstrom Six are moved in and they're settled in our new home, and we're so excited about it. And we thank you all for your prayers and the help. Um, my goodness, it was, it was wonderful. We had tons of help loading the truck, tons of help unloading the truck. We were blessed by so many expressions of love and of thanks and of gratitude that we're here, and we just want to reciprocate that back to you and tell you how blessed we are to be in Sioux Falls and how much we appreciate our Linwood family and how excited we are about this next season of life. It's going to be great. So um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, in this message series that we're in right now, and it's been a little disjointed, we had to cancel last week, um, so it feels like I haven't been to church in a year or something like that. Pastors don't miss church very often, uh, so it's been a little weird, but uh, I was excited to get back into this uh, series, back into this message, and this idea of getting past our past, learning what we can from our past. And I don't know about you, but I tend to learn very, very quickly in the areas of my life that matter the least, right? You teach me a new card game, I'll figure out in two or three hands some mistakes that I've been making, a new strategy, and I will be functional in that card game within 20 or 30 minutes. Or, you know, a cell phone game. I figure out those cell phone games, and I figure out the angle and the trick, and I learn from my mistakes very, very quickly in the areas that matter least. But, as human beings, we tend to learn a little slower in the areas that matter most, in relationships, in finances, in some of these other areas where it seems like we can find ourselves making the same mistake over and over. And that adds to the frustration, and it adds to the pressure. And, you know, next thing you know, we've got a past that we want to get past. So that's what we're talking about in this series, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to give you three, three myths about starting over or getting past our past that I think will be helpful to you because if you think about these and keep them in mind, when they pop up in your thinking, you realize, oh, but that's a myth. That's not true. And a lot of this uh, message comes from a sermon series I heard four years ago by Andy Stanley. So I want to give credit where credit's due, but when something impacts me to the extent that I'm still thinking about it four years later, and it fits so perfectly in this context, uh, there's some things from there that I pulled in uh, to this message that, that I think are good, and this is one of them. Uh, these three myths about getting past your past, the first one is the experience myth. The experience myth says experience will make me wiser experience will make me wiser, but it doesn't necessarily, does it, right? Experience can make you lonelier or poorer or tireder, if that's even a word. Maybe we should say more tired. 
But unevaluated experience doesn't necessarily make you wiser. It's when we evaluate our experience and we say, what can I learn from this experience and how can I be different going into the future because of the experience that I've had? That's when we become wiser because wisdom is different from knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge applied. It's when we take what we've learned, we take what we know now, and we become different as a result of it. And that is where we leverage the experience that we've had by evaluating it and becoming wiser for it. That's why I journal. And if you come to me and you say, Pastor Mark, I need to, I need to meet with you sometime and, and tell you my story and tell you some choices that are before me, you're probably going to hear me at some point during that meeting say, you really ought to get out a pen and paper and journal about this. You ought to write about this. You ought to evaluate how you got into this situation so that you can learn from it and be different as a result of it. The second myth about getting past your past is the idea that if I know better, I'll do better. I call this the know better, do better myth. Just because you know better doesn't mean you're going to do better, does it? And how many of you have teenagers or had teenagers at some point and you tell them something, you, ex- you express some truth into their life and what do they say? They say, I know, I know, I know. Well, then why did you do, do, do if you know, no, no? And it's always three times, isn't it? Or it's that long drawn out, I know, right? And we do the same thing with God, don't we? It's like, There's this lesson I'm reading through Proverbs, and I'm like, I know that. I know that's true, and yet I still did that. So know better doesn't necessarily mean that we'll do better. Knowing that the right thing to do or the wrong thing doesn't mean you'll do the right thing or not do the wrong thing. The third one is this myth that time is against me. And you'll hear this popping up sometimes as we move from one serial mistake to the next serial mistake will say something like, well, time is against me, or I'm not getting any younger, you know, especially in relationships. Sometimes people will say, I got, I got out of a bad relationship. I got to get right back into the next relationship because time is against me, and I'm not getting any younger, and everybody else my age is doing this or doing that, or I know I just filed for bankruptcy, but I've got to get back on the horse, and I got to get back with a credit card and get back with a mortgage and all these other things because we think time is against us, and the reality is that time is not against us. Time can be our friend, especially if we will hit the pause button and we will evaluate what happened and how we ended up where we are now in order to have a different future so that the next time isn't like the last time or, God forbid, worse than the last time. So those are three myths that can be really helpful. Today's message builds upon that foundation, and it's a message titled, Own It. And the idea behind this message is that if there's someone to blame, there's nothing to learn. If there's someone to blame for whatever happened, then there's nothing for us to learn from what happened. But if we can hit the pause button and we can evaluate what happened and what our part was in that, and we can own our part of our negative past, then we have an opportunity to write a different story and to to evaluate what happened and move into the future with wisdom that applies the knowledge that we've gained. Now, as I did two weeks ago when we started this, I, wanna, I feel like I need to do it again, especially with this message. If you were the victim of abuse or neglect or some random act of violence that, that is the part of the past that you're needing to get past, I'm not talking about owning that. I'm not talking about, about taking responsibility for somebody else's uh, abuse of you, okay? Don't, don't get that idea at all. Now, there may be a part of that 
where you've told yourself a story or you've taken on a victim identity and that has influenced future relationships or future situations. And there may be a part that God will lead you through some healing in that area. And if this is you, maybe, maybe a wise counselor or a Christian counselor could help you. Not that Christian counselors aren't wise. <laughs> some of the wisest counselors I've ever met are Christian counselors and they've been tremendous uh, assistance to me in getting past things in my past. But you might need to work through that and evaluate that and learn what you can from that. But today we're going to be talking about, and the main thing that we're going to talk about is what I call the blame game. And, and you're probably familiar with this phrase, the blame game, and this idea. And it's interesting, it starts all the way back on page 5 of your Bible. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, and the whole thing kicks off in Genesis chapter 1. We see the blame game begin right after the fall. So we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to read something today that's so ancient and so brilliant and so insightful, and it's such a tragedy that so many people are trying to discredit the Bible or get it out of our hands or get it out of our schools or get it out of wherever it is because they say it's a myth. They say it's just a creation story or something like that. And I want you to know I firmly believe that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God and that it can teach us things, even the most ancient parts of it, the things that are so far back, that they're at the very dawn of creation, the very dawn of humanity, so much that we can learn from it. In fact, it's so insightful and it's so wise that even if it wasn't the Word of God, we should pay attention to the lessons that it has. But because we know that it is the Word of God and we know that it's truth, then we can say, okay, what does this have to teach us and how can we learn from the experiences of others, that's one of the best reasons to read the Old Testament because you can learn from other people's mistakes so that you don't have to make all the mistakes yourself, right? And so we're going to look at this and we are going to evaluate this in the context of getting past our past and seeing the blame game for what it is. So if you want to open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 3, if you have one of the pew Bibles that are in the seats underneath you, you can pull that out to page 5, way back. And this is um, basically chapter 1 and chapter 2. God's creating everything, and when he finishes creating everything, it's all good. There's nothing that isn't good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, God's one rule, the only rule he had, when God was calling the shots and everything was working the way God wanted it to work, there was one rule. And that one rule was, don't eat that fruit from that tree. Everything else was okay. And yet, early part of this chapter... We see the the enemy come in the form of of a serpent, Satan, and he tempts Eve, and she ends up eating that fruit, gives some to Adam, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 8. And so here's Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Now, it's interesting, this is the first question in the Bible, and we have to keep in mind that the God we're talking about is all-knowing, all-seeing, he's beyond space and time, he's omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-everything. So when God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. So why does he ask the question here? Why does he ask Adam and Eve, where are you? Well, I believe he asks the question because he wants them to know that he's looking for them. And if you're here today and you've become far from God or you've drifted away from him, I want you to know that God is looking for you too today. He is seeking you. He's saying, where are you? Not because he doesn't know, 
but because he wants you to know that he's looking for you. And he's not looking for you so that he can turn you over his knee and give you what, his, what you deserve. He's looking for you because he's crazy about you. He's looking for you so he can wrap you in his arms and give you what you don't deserve, which is his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. And maybe, just maybe, getting past your past is going to involve receiving the gift of grace and forgiveness from God that he has for you right now. He's looking for you because he's crazy about you. He's seeking you as well. Picking up in verse 10, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And that's what we do, right? When we're afraid, we hide. We hide what we're afraid of being caught out. Caught. We, we're like little toddlers, you know? We, we stuff it under our pillow or we put it under our bed or we, we hide what we broke and we think nobody will notice. And from the very beginning, when we've done something wrong as humans, we have tried to hide what we did wrong. Verse 11, but God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam said, yes, I did. And I take full responsibility for my actions. Do what you will with me, but you leave Eve out of it. She's innocent. And we laugh because that's not at all what Adam said, is it? Chapter 3, verse 12, the blame game kicks into full gear. And here's what Adam really said. The woman that you put with me gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. So it's basically like Adam throws the only two people in the world besides him under the bus. He says, well, you gave me the woman and she gave me the fruit. So you two talk it out and apologize to me. And if I'm feeling in a gracious mood, I'll forgive you. We'll forget it ever happened. Okay, we'll just move on. Right? That's how the blame game works, isn't it? That's exactly what he does. And the first thing that the first two people, because Eve's not innocent in this either, if you look at verse 13, she also blames the serpent, the only other created thing that's been named in this whole thing. So they blame somebody else. And they want to tell a story that's mostly true. You see, Adam's story, the woman you put with me gave me the fruit, so I ate it. And that story is factually correct, isn't it? But it's not the whole story, is it? It leaves out the part where I knew I shouldn't have because you had told me the one thing you told us not to do was to not eat the fruit. And so I do take responsibility for that. We don't hear that part. And this is what we're tempted to do every time that something like this happens. We want to tell a story that's mostly true, but it leaves out just a little bit. It's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's mostly true. And what happens when we tell that 90% or 95% or 75% true story long enough, we start to actually believe it. And that is what enables us to smuggle our past into our future. When we leave a little bit out and we tell ourselves and we tell that side of the story long enough, then we believe that that is the whole story and that is the whole truth. And that blame smuggles our issues into our future. And it sets us up for a repeat performance. And the truth is, you cannot blame yourself and blame your way into a better future. You can't blame your way into a better future. You have to to take stock of what your part was and then evaluate that experience and move forward. Because I don't want you to smuggle your past into your future. I want you to hit the pause button. I want you to evaluate it. 
And I believe God wants you to evaluate and figure out what part you had to play in that and then evaluate that understanding and take ownership of your part because it's a game changer. It leads to clarity. It leads to clarity about what happened. It leads to clarity about where you are now and it leads to clarity about what you can do so that you don't do the same thing over and over and over. In fact, Matthew 5, 8, if you want to turn over to page 1501, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in all of, of the sermons that have ever been preached. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's three chapters of red letters, and it takes about 18 minutes, so most church people would agree that sermons should be capped at about 18 minutes. We're going to go a little longer, uh, but... But he says, he starts this off with these blessed are statements. And the things that he's saying, the people that he's saying are blessed are not who comes to mind when we think about those who are blessed. With perhaps the exception of verse 8. Where he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And there is a relationship between purity and and clarity that enables us to see God. And as we take stock in our experience and and what we can learn from our experience, and we become pure in heart because we're not blaming everything on somebody else, then we have the opportunity to see God and see God's hand in the midst of that circumstance, in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of our past. Like the song that we sang this morning, which is such a phenomenal song, that God is fighting for us, that he's always fighting for us. Even when we're messing everything up in our lives and we're making terrible decisions, he's fighting for us. He's seeking us. He's out there going to bat for us, advocating for us through the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, that word that we translate as as counselor in the New Testament, literally means advocate, that God's Spirit is advocating for us, not just for the Father, but for the Father's input into our lives. The Holy Spirit reminds us of His words. And as He's fighting for us, and He's seeking to give us a perspective, like we talked about two weeks ago, that perspective transforms pain into power, that when we evaluate our part of it, and we evaluate and learn what we can from our part in it, then that transforms our pain from the past into power for our future. That that wisdom that we gain as we apply the knowledge that we have gives us a purity of heart that allows us to see God and see his activity in our lives. And the other thing that it does is it lowers the temperature of that story as we rehearse it to ourselves, as we share it with others, that we can tell the whole story. We can tell the, the part that we played in it as well. Because now we are seeing clearly. We are asking God to reveal to us what we can learn from it so that next time won't be like the last time. Now, I've got a little homework assignment for you in the next 24 hours. If you don't do this in the next 24 hours, you're probably not going to do it. So I would encourage you to do it this afternoon unless you're like me and your quiet time and your connection with God happens in the morning. Then you could do this in the morning. I want you to think about if there's anything in your past that you want to get past then I want you to draw a circle that we will call the circle of blame. And what we normally do with the circle of blame is that we write, draw the circle and we say, it's all their fault. <laughs> That's what the blame game says. It's like, it's all their fault. That divorce, that was all their fault. That bankruptcy, that was all my wife's fault or the creditor's fault or the loan shark's fault. It was all their fault, whatever it was. But I want you to pray about this, and I want you to think about this, and I want you to ask God to reveal, God, is there any part of this 
that might be my fault. And I'm not saying it's 50-50. You don't have to jump right to and say, you know, I was half, I was, it t- takes two to tango and it was half my fault. Sometimes people take advantage of us. Sometimes people don't behave the way they ought to. But maybe, maybe it's just the tiniest little sliver, wafer thin, right? Wafer thin sliver that is your fault. But if you can identify that and you can take ownership of that and you can ask God to instruct you and teach you what you could do differently, maybe he'll also reveal that, you know, it wasn't such a small part, actually. It was 12, 15% your fault. Or maybe it was 25% your fault. And maybe you had a lot of chances to make different choices and you consistently did not make different choices. And so, yeah, it's 25% fault. Maybe it is 50-50. Maybe it did take two to tango. Maybe you were both young and immature and you were both making bad decisions and, and you didn't help each other out. Maybe it was 50-50. Wherever it is, draw that circle and ask God to help you identify what part is my part in this and what part do I have to learn from and what part do I need to, to be different in the future. Because here's our bottom line today. Our bottom line today is you make peace with the past by owning your peace of the past. You make peace with the past by owning your piece of the past. When you identify what piece of the past belongs to you and you take ownership of that, that's a game changer. That sets you up for a different future because you can say, you know what, I did have a part to play in that. Some of that is on me. And I could have made different decisions. I could have listened to advice. I could have done something that would have changed the trajectory of that situation, and I didn't. And you take ownership of that piece of the past, and that is what helps you to make peace with the past. And so while you've got your journal out, and while you've got your pen in your hand, and after you've drawn your circle, that circle of blame, there's one more step. And the bigger and the harder and the more unfair their part is, the harder it's going to be for you to see your part and to really dive into that. So while you've got your pen and your paper, I want you to start a sentence. And I'm going to give you some ideas of ways that you might start this sentence. If you've got a pen with you right now, you might jot down one or two that touches a nerve so that you can revisit this as you think about a certain circumstance in your past that you've had a hard time getting past. Because one of these or more of these might fit with the circumstance that you're trying to get past. You know, I had a feeling that something wasn't right, but I didn't want to dig around. That might, that might be the sentence that you write down and and then you write a paragraph, and then you write a page, and you allow God to speak to you through your own pen. He does it to me all the time. Maybe he'd do it for you as well. Or I didn't want to upset the apple cart, but I knew something wasn't quite right, and I went along too long. I, I ignored my conscience. Maybe that could be how you start your sentence. Or people I trusted warned me, but I didn't listen. Mama told me that girl was bad news. My friends told me that she was going to break my heart, but I didn't listen. I, I was too proud. I was too proud to listen to advice. Or maybe I stayed too long and I enabled. I I knew I needed to confront the issue, but I was afraid. And so I stayed quiet. I knew it was a risky investment. I shouldn't have borrowed the money to make the investment, but I was greedy and all my friends were doing it. And I thought, why can't I have what they're having? And so I was greedy and I made a bad decision based on greed and wanting more for myself. I had one relationship after another, and I was getting older, and time was against me, and I jumped into that relationship because I was lonely. 
And I just didn't want to be alone anymore. And I never would have made that decision if I wasn't so lonely. And you can use that as a thought starter, a journal starter. Or maybe I just got sick and tired of seeing what my brother-in-law had and what he was driving and where he was living. So I took out the credit cards and I leveraged our income to get everything that we ever wanted and then we ended up bankrupt. I was, I was jealous. I was just jealous. Maybe I was selfish. Maybe that's the thought starter. That I went into my marriage or I went into that relationship or I went into that workplace just to get for me, just to get what I wanted. I used that business like a stepping stone. I, didn't, I wasn't there to contribute. I was there to get. I was selfish. Here's one. It was lust. It was lust, plain and simple. It was just lust. I never would have, I would never would have entertained a relationship with that person if it wasn't for lust. It was lust. I take ownership of that part. Or maybe, you know, my teacher was against me and my boss was against me and the deck was stacked against me and the cards weren't in my favor. But at the end of the day, I didn't do my best. I didn't show up and do my best. I made excuses. And that's why I failed. That's why I flunked out. That's why. I should have left. But I was too embarrassed. I should have left the party when it turned in that direction. I should have left when they got out those things. But I didn't. I was too embarrassed. I was afraid of what people would think of me. And so... I didn't. I should have asked for help. I knew I had a problem. I kept telling myself I could handle it. I kept telling myself I could control it, but I should have asked for help. I should have accepted the help that people were offering me. I should have asked for help. Bottom line, I lied to myself. I knew the truth, but I lied to myself. And that's why I'm in the mess I'm in. Because the bottom line is you make peace with your past by owning your peace of the past. If you'll sit down with a pen and paper and you'll pick up one of those statements and you'll start and you'll see what God reveals to you, I think it will be powerful. Because your heavenly Father wants to help you find freedom. He wants to help you step over that line of fear into the land of faith and experience the freedom that he died for you to have. He doesn't want to punish you. We punish ourselves enough. He wants you to experience his love and his grace and his mercy. He wants you to get past your past. He wants you to make sure that the next time isn't like the last time. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom it contains. And we pray, God, that you would give us the wisdom to see as you see, the wisdom to know what to do, to evaluate our part of our past, to take ownership of our peace, of the circle, and to be different as a result of it. We pray that you would give us the courage to do as you say, to do what needs to be done in order to learn and to grow and to become more like Jesus. And help us, Lord, to be your people, living for your glory, learning from our past, and moving into the future with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.